0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called God Infinite, God Intimate. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June seventh, two 2009, Trinity Sunday. As I walked through the Egyptian section of the British Museum a few summers ago, I marveled at the many ways that humanity has depicted God. The Egyptian god Sobek, for example, was pictured as a man with the head of a crocodile. Or consider the Hindu fire god Agni. He has two faces smeared with butter, seven tongues, gold teeth, seven arms, and three legs. We could produce other images of the divine almost endlessly, such is the creativity of the human imagination. The philosopher John Hick once observed that if you collected all the notions of God that human religions have manufactured, they would fill a book the size of a telephone directory. Where did these images of God come from? One theory of religion suggests that these so-called gods are little more than our unconscious psychological projections of our own insecurities. In this view, first propounded in a scientific way by Ludwig Forabach, and later developed by Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud, religion is a dream in which our own conceptions and emotions appear to us as separate existences, beings out of ourselves. Theology, or talk about God, is thus reduced to anthropology, or talk about humanity. Praying is talking to yourself. We shouldn't be too quick to dismiss this view. Farbach, Marx, and Freud were wrong in what they denied, that God doesn't exist, but they were partly right in what they affirmed that many of our images of God are human projections of our own making. Far too often, and Christians are not immune from this, we create God in our own pathetic image. It's one thing for humans to be created in the image of God, but quite another for God to be created in the image of man. The prohibition of images in Judaism Exodus 24, and also in Islam, are partly an effort to curb this human tendency. When I'm honest, it's disturbing to consider my many pictures of God. There's God as Candyman or the Sugar Daddy, who reinforces my self-aggrandizing narcissism. Sometimes God feels like the absentee landlord or reclusive neighbor, I know that he exists, but he feels hidden, silent, non-communicative, and far away. At least the psalmist experienced this and wrote about that image. Then there's God as the vending machine, the concierge, or the short-order cook, ready, willing, and able to cater to my whims. To make my problems disappear, there's God as magician, and to engineer a parking space, or to fine-tune some petty detail of my life, there's God as the puppeteer. When I feel the weight of my faults and failures, God looms as the high school principal, the probation officer, or divine accountant. In those roles, he snoops around in the dirty details of my life. He exposes me, and I'm found in arrears. In election season, we get God as the partisan politician to reinforce the worst sorts of patriotism. This tribal deity inhabits both Republican and Democratic precincts. And over the 4th of July, God as the national mascot makes his appearance to reinforce our illusions of exceptionalism, that America is bigger, better, stronger, and holier than any country on earth. This deeply human impulse to create God in our own image is so strong and so misleading and so dangerous that the Swiss theologian Karl Barth went so far as to, to describe the gospel revelation, literally something we couldn't know if God didn't tell us, as the Aufhebung of all human religion. In other words, revelation is the abolition the annulment or invalidation of all human religion in Bart's view, human religion and divine revelation are polar opposites. That's a little extreme for my taste. Bart seems to throw out the baby with the bathwater, but he was dealing with Hitler, who claimed divine sanction and with his theological professors who had signed on to Hitler's genocidal program. And so, his warning is well taken. Following Kierkegaard, Bart drew upon scriptures, like the two Old Testament readings for this week, to emphasize the absolute transcendence of God. He is, as Bart put it, Holy Other, and that's capital W, capital O. Between the infinite God and finite humanity, there is only an infinite abyss, and that is with a capital I and a capital A. God is not to be caricatured or confused with human projections. The voice of the Lord in Psalm 29 thunders over mighty waters. God's word is a powerful and majestic voice, says the psalmist, that splinters the cedars, twists the oaks, and rips the bark off a tree. The psalmist compares this voice to the flash of lightning. Similarly, in Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet envisions God high and lifted up. Celestial creatures surround his throne in worship, covering their eyes at the very sight. At the sound of their voice, writes Isaiah, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. The transcendence of God means that in our sin infinitude, we need to be very careful about our images of the infinite. The two readings from the New Testament this week deepen our understanding. God is not only transcendent. Yes, he's infinite, mysterious, and beyond human knowing. But we should never imply that he's unknowable. Rather, he is also imminent. Not only high and lifted up, but also near and dear to each and every person. The first words of the Lord's Prayer capture this perfectly. Our Father, who art in heaven. If these words are to be trusted, and Christians certainly believe they should be, Jesus tells us that if you want to know what God is like, He's like a loving Father. Paul says the same thing when he writes to the Romans. We should not relate to God as a slave who fears a master, but rather as a child in a filial relationship with a protective parent, Abba, Father. Romans 8.15 and Galatians 4.6 As many people have observed, Abba is the Aramaic word for something like Papa. The word is used only three times in the New Testament and conveys a shocking sense not so much of informality, but of intimacy. It's a word that little children first learn to speak, that little children first learning to speak use for their father, and that Jesus himself used to speak of God in Mark 1436. During the four years that my family lived in Moscow, 1991 to 1995, we took the overnight train to St. Petersburg a number of times. There we visited the Hermitage Museum which houses Rembrandt's prodigal son from the year 1666. The painting is enormous and full of deep dark reds and browns. In it the bent-over father embraces the kneeling son. With compassion with tenderness, and without any questions about his many failings. What is God like? Jesus says that he's like an earthly father who does anything to bequeath all that is best to his children. He's like a loving father who embraces us and welcomes us home. He's strong, affectionate, protective, impeccably safe, unconditionally loving in his work of redemption jesus reconciles us to this loving god in his work of revelation he shows us what this god is like he who has seen me has seen the father john 14:9 I've always appreciated the Eastern Orthodox emphasis on what's called apophatic theology, the notion that the transcendent God is beyond human definition and comprehension, and yet at the same time truly immanent. In his book Encountering the Mystery, Bartholomew I, his All-Holiness Ecumenical Patriarch, summarizes this perfectly. God is unknowable and yet as profoundly known. God is invisible and yet as personally accessible. God is distant and yet as intensely present. The infinite God thus becomes truly intimate in relating to the world. And for further reflection... When have you experienced God as especially remote or near? And can you discern why? How do we hold together God so far and God so near without losing or confusing either? What are the consequences of stressing only the transcendence or imminence of God? And finally, for further reading, see the book Donald McCullough, The Trivialization of God, The Dangerous Illusion of a Manageable Deity, and then the book by Henry Nouwen, The Return of the Prodigal. For books this week, we have a guest book review The title of the book is The Radical Peasant, Trafford Publishing. The author is Gerald F. Cox, from the year 2006. This review is by Deacon Jeffrey Burns, Ph.D. Dr. Burns is the archivist for the Catholic Archdiocese of San Francisco. The review first appeared in the Catholic San Francisco, June 22, 2007, and is used with permission. The title of the book, again, The Radical Peasant, by Gerald Fox. Charles Phillips? Father Charles Phillips? Who is Father Charles Phillips? There was a time in the history of the Archdiocese of San Francisco when this question could have been answered by just about anyone. Today, however, the memory of Father Phillips has faded, though his legacy has not. Gerald Cox has done the local church a great service by providing a splendid memoir of this great priest. Phillips was an uncompromising advocate of the poor and a champion of the church's teaching on social justice. Charles Phillips was born on September 17, 1881, in Stunwiler, Alsace, France. In 1911, he was ordained a priest and immigrated to the United States that same year. When Phillips arrived in San Francisco, the Archdiocese covered a vast expanse, consisting of the 13 Bay Area counties, which included a good deal of farmland. From his first pastorate in Houston in 1921 to his final pastorate at St. Mary's in West Oakland, Phillips stood up for the small farmer, family farms, and the migrant farm worker. Upon his arrival as pastor in Sebastopol in 1930, at the outset of the Great Depression, Phillips encouraged the farmers to establish cooperatives and was instrumental in the creation of the Farmers' Protective League. In 1933, he became director of the Archdiocese and Catholic Rural Life Conference, a position he held until 1952. Phillips regularly advocated for family farms, encouraging a 160-acre limit on farms, decrying California's massive agribusiness and corporate farming and the organization of large farmers, whom he dubbed the Associated Farmers. Phillips regularly testified before state and federal agencies with his usual bluntness. Cox dubbed Phillips the radical peasant, as his strident views on farming, grounded in the papal social encyclicals, rankled many people. One father in Sebastopol observed if he wasn't a Catholic priest, he would have been tarred and feathered a long time ago. And the director of the National Catholic Rural Life Conference wrote to Phillips, I am very happy that you have been accused of being a communist again. After all, such accusations must come your way now and then, or you would be failing in the main purpose of your life. Phillips was also a strong advocate for the appropriate care of the migrant farm worker. He was known as the godfather of the Spanish Mission Board, four priests assigned to minister directly to migrant workers. Phillips' most memorable quip evolved from his work with the Heifer International Project, which sought to provide cows for a decimated Europe following World War II. When the rector of the St. Patrick Seminary suggested that Phillips would do better to send tractors and farming equipment rather than cows, Phillips responded, well, father, that's not a bad idea, but the fact is that tractors don't ship. The response has lived on in clerical lore ever since. Beyond being an advocate for rural life, Phillips also became a strong advocate for the urban poor and immigrants in Oakland. Unlike many pastors of the era, Phillips didn't insist on his immigrant parishioners learning English. Rather, he learned their language. He sent his own assistant pastor to Mexico to learn Spanish. Phillips himself spoke six languages fluently. In addition, while he was at St. Mary's, he brought in Sisters of Social Service for settlement work, established a soup kitchen, a free breakfast program for children, and most significantly, Sunshine Camp, a summer camp for any inner-city children on the Russian River. Each year, from West Oakland in the Fillmore in San Francisco, youth escaped to the beloved camp on the river. The camp was staffed by seminarians and survived on donations alone. It was built by hard work. As Cox observes of Phillips, Charlie considered human sweat almost as a sacramental sign of wholeness and holiness. He would ask the seminarians, are you here to smile or to sweat? At the camp, hundreds of boys and girls had an experience of the church that was hard to duplicate or to forget. Phillips died on July 18, 1958, at the age of 76. He had influenced the lives of many lay and clergy. As Cox admits, whenever I'm confronted with the injustices of society, Charlie's face looms up in front of me. His life and example inspired many to become social activists. The title of the book, The Radical Peasant, by Gerald Cox. The book review by Jeffrey Burns of the Archdiocese of San Francisco. For film this week, I review The Prestige, from the year 2006. Two magicians, Robert Angier and Alfred Borden, started out as partners and friends. But then a tragic stage accident made them bitter enemies. Set in turn-of-the-century England, this film takes us behind the scenes, as it were, to learn the mechanics of magic, its craft, its secrets, its showmanship. But the film is more about the men than about their magic. It's about their obsessions, egos, and envy. Anger and Borden do everything they can to destroy each other. They sabotage each other's performances, steal secrets, ping-pong the beautiful assistant Olivia between them as a lover and spy, and contrive any and every advantage over the other. They intend to destroy one another, and one of them succeeds. The film gets its name from the third part of every magic trick, after the so-called pledge to do something outrageous, and then the turn of events. The prestige is the part with the twists and turns, where lives hang in the balance and you see something shocking you've never seen before. That description fits not only the magicians, but their very own lives. The Prestige from the year 2006. And finally for this week, we've posted a poem by Mae Sarton. Mae Sarton lived from 1912 to 1995. By the time she died, she had published 53 books. The title of the poem is called Now I become myself. Now I become myself. It's taken time. Many years in places. I have been dissolved and shaken. Worn other people's faces. Run madly as if time were there. Terribly old crying a warning, hurry you will be dead before, what, before you reach the morning, or the end of the poem is clear, or love's safe in the walled city? Now to stand still, to be here, feel my own weight and density. The black shadow on the paper is my hand, the shadow of a word as thought shapes the shaper, falls heavy on the page, is heard. All fuses now falls into place from wish to action, word to silence. My work, my love, my time, my face, gathered into one intense gesture of growing like a plant. As slowly as the ripening fruit, Fertile, detached, and always spent. Falls, but does not exhaust the root. So all the poem is, can give. Grows in me to become the song. Made so and rooted so by love. Now there is time, and time is young. Oh, in this single hour, I love all of myself and do not move. I, the pursued who madly ran, Stand still, stand still, And stop the sun. May Sarton, now I become myself. Thank you for joining us at Journey with Jesus for Sunday, June the 7th, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.